Okay, friends, if you've got a Bible, we're in Acts chapter 17. Acts is one of the most famous chapters, indeed probably the most famous chapter in all of Scripture where the gospel is preached to intellectuals. Paul arrives in the city of Athens, the learned city, Ovid calls it, because he's on the run from the Jews from Thessalonica who chased him all the way to Berea, and then he had to escape down to Athens without Silas and Timothy. He's waiting for Silas and Timothy down in the city of Athens, and he begins to preach, as he always does in the synagogue. And then he goes to the marketplace. And then they bring him to a place called the Areopagus, Mars Hill. And something very interesting happens. So give your attention to God's word. We'll read from Acts chapter 17, beginning at verse 16 and going down through verse 34. This is God's word, and it intends to change you, not leave you the same. Let's listen and see how he intends to do that. Let's stand together if you're willing and able. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. And some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? And others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, Maybe you know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. And now all the Athenians and foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. And what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets have said, for we indeed are his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, and among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, 
and others with them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated, please. At the beginning of any elementary skydiving class, the very first one you'll ever go to, skydiver instructors will tell you three things that you've got to know if you're going to safely jump out of a perfectly good airplane. The first is how to pack your parachute. The second is when to pull the cord. And these two things will save your life. But more than those two things, the third thing you must know, you must remember before you jump out of that airplane is this. Did you put on your parachute? Ask the friends of Ivan Lester McGuire. He had logged hundreds of hours jumping out of airplanes. He was what they would call a professional. He was so good that he decided he would start videotaping other people jumping out of airplanes, and so he became this very well-known photographer throughout North Carolina for videotaping hundreds of men jumping out of airplanes, interlocking arms, and making these beautiful kaleidoscopes across the sky. And on his 800th jump, Ivan Lester McGuire got all of his stuff ready and got his helmet cam put exactly like he wanted, and he jumped out of the airplane. Only he forgot his parachute. At an interview before the funeral, the owner of the skydiving club said, he is a real perfectionist when it comes to his video photography. And he'd been working on it a lot. The best we can figure is he became preoccupied with the video. Listen, I, I don't know about you, but I can get distracted very easily. I was reminded last night, did you guys hear that Owasso beat Jinx in football? I mean, if you've struggled with the gospel and don't believe in miracles, there it is, right? The first time in 22 years. I remember when I was a senior in high school, and it was our rival football game, and we were playing our crosstown rival, and we had a, we had a photographer, actually, a video photographer, who was on our team, who got a little disoriented, if I can say it like that. And she had been warned several times during our arrival football game in the middle of a packed stadium, do not step on the field. But what do you know? It's third and ten, and we're in the red zone, and we're down by six, and we're about to score. And they throw a flag, the referees do, because our videographer had wandered into the end zone, totally disoriented, trying to get the footage of the winning drive. And it was horrifying for me because that videographer was my mother. <laughs> and the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. I remember when Lauren asked me to watch our kids. And so I, uh, I thought, yeah, no problem. So she goes off and she goes on a jog or something like that. And she comes back in and she's like, um, Blake, where's Annie? She's in her room playing. No, she's not. Yes, she, no, she's not. So we go up to her room and there, sure enough, she's not there. And we go to the backyard, and we look, and she's not there. And all of a sudden, I get a little nervous. And we cannot find our four-year-old daughter anywhere. And so we scout the neighborhood, and sure enough, there she was. In the next-door neighbor's room. <laughs> in their living room, playing with them, because I had gotten distracted. Listen, do you ever get distracted? Do you ever get distracted by things that you see? They're just, they're important. They're good things. 
but somehow in the midst of being distracted by those good things, sometimes you miss the most simple things in life. Don't get so preoccupied, friends, that you forget your parachute. That's the point of this morning's sermon. Natural revelation is what theologians call when God reveals himself to us through nature. It is perceptive to everybody, whether you're a Christian or you're not. And so Christians and non-Christians, all of you who are here, you're not off the hook because some things become so obvious to us as human beings that if we're not careful, we'll get preoccupied and we'll miss the natural footprints and evidence that God exists. Paul arrives in Athens and he meets a very preoccupied people in complete and utter freefall. And he begins to give them a course in what theologians call natural revelation. And he tells them three very simple things to know and believe if you are to survive the fall. Don't get so preoccupied that you forget your parachute. Let me show you those three things. You ready? Number one, first, God made everything. Verse 24, it says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. In Paul's day, the Athenians were preoccupied with their education. They were preoccupied with sexual pleasure. They were preoccupied with raising their children, according to Greek society. They were preoccupied with having a successful life. Sound familiar? And homage in Athens was paid to all the greats, to Ares, the god of war. The Romans called him Mars. To Zeus, to Athena, to Dionysius. To all the gods of the pantheon, and Petronius, who is the, uh, the right-hand man to Nero when Paul lived, said it is easier in the city of Athens to find a god than a man. Cicero said the city of Athens upholds the entire reputation of Greece. Ovid and other philosophers called Athens the learned city. But don't get so preoccupied that you forget your parachute. In verse 19, it says that Paul, when he came to Athens, went into the marketplace, went to the synagogue first, which is what he always did. He went to the Gentiles who were God-fearing Gentiles, who were sensitive to the things of the gospel. And then he expanded his preaching ministry and went to the marketplace. And in the northwest corner of the Agora, the marketplace, there would be all of these phallic symbols and all of these gods that people would pay homage to as they shopped, right? You want to get a special deal, so you pass by Zeus and you, you, you leave a shekel for him in addition to paying the uh, men of commerce. And so here Paul is preaching, and they're hearing him preach in a way that sounds, sounds strange. Jesus in the resurrection. Like, this is not the normal god of the pantheon that we're used to hearing. And so they said, all right, listen, if, if you're going to preach to us these things, they're new, we want you to be checked out. And so they took him to this rocky crag. This, it was kind of like this, um, you know, Mars Hill, as the Romans called it, where it was the place historically where Ares, which is the Greek god Mars, was, was supposedly tried for murder. And in the ancient days, in classical Greece, it was the place of the tribunal or the place of justice in the courts. 
But by Paul's day, Mars Hill had become the place of justice for truth. And rather than courts where judges sat, it was a court of truth where all the philosophers sat to discuss what it says in the scripture, the latest and greatest philosophy. And so they take Paul here, and Paul says to these men, listen, men of Athens, verse 22. Do you see it in your text? I perceive that in every way you're very religious. For I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, and I also found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. And what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Paul is taking them to skydiving school 101 and saying, don't get so preoccupied that you forget your parachute. Here it is. First, God made everything, and that means that he is the creator. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it. You remember the story of Genesis chapter 1. God created the world, right? He did it in six days. And he said it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good. It was very good. And he created man, the last of his creations, after his image. And he gave him inherent dignity. And Paul says to these men, look, God made the world and everything in it. Because when Paul looked around, he saw all of these idols. And it says that he was, he was completely beside himself. The Greek word here is paroxino, which is that his spirit was provoked, it says in verse 16. He was, he was ticked off that there were so many gods and nobody actually was proclaiming the truth. And Paul says that in his internal anger, which is the same Greek word that God uses in the Old Testament for Israel's anger in Isaiah 65 and Hosea 8, he says, friends, you have forgotten that God is a creator and you've fallen into idolatry. Idolatry is not a word we use a lot these days. You think about big statues of people and people prostrating themselves before some object. But idolatry, Matthew Henry says, is whatever is esteemed or loved or feared or served or delighted in or depended on more than God. Whatever it is, that we make a God of. And idolatry begins when we begin esteeming ourselves as the creator or begin to worship the creation. It can be either one. You, have y'all heard the story? You've heard all the stuff about Roger Goodell and the NFL these days, right? You know, the, the NFL is um, going through a real time of growing pains as an organization. Um, football players have been accused of domestic violence. One was caught on videotape in an elevator. It's horrible. And um, thousands of women have called in to uh, abuse hotlines in the last two weeks because of the awareness that's been raised to the NFL's issue with domestic violence. At the heart of domestic violence are men who want to be the creator, who want to dominate over other people. That's an idolatry where they have esteemed themselves as the creator, the one who controls all things. They have put themselves in the place of God. The other kind of idolatry is the kind of idolatry where we worship the creation. I mean, those of you who are struggling at home to make ends meet, 
and you don't really, you don't really intend for it to happen, but you're just afraid that if you cut back on your budget, you're afraid if you pull back on your budget just a little bit, then people are going to perceive you differently. You may have to move homes. You may have to live in a different place. That internal anxiety that you feel when you struggle with your family budget may be because you begin to idolize the creation rather than the creator who has given you everything you need. But we feel the pressure to idolize opinions of other people. That God made everything means that he is the creator. It also means that he rules over all creation. It says being Lord of heaven and earth. You remember, um, you may remember in the Old Testament where Isaiah um, says, stand firm and call this to mind. Remember the old things, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I make the end from the beginning and from ancient times what is still to come. I say that my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. I will summon a bird of prey from a far off land and I will bring a man to fulfill my purpose. That which I have purposed, I will accomplish. And that which I set out to do, I will surely fulfill. The Lord is the Lord of all creation. When we stop believing that the Lord is the Lord of all creation, we stop believing in his providential care. Colossians 1 tells us that he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which they used to teach children for hundreds of years, they still do. What are the works of God's providence? The works of God's providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. This unknown God, I proclaim to you, is the creator of the universe. He is the creator, and he rules over all creation. The Heidelberg Catechism is an old German Reformed catechism, and it asks the very, the very first question, says, what is your only comfort, Christian, in life and in death? Answer, that I am not my own, but I belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for my sin with his precious blood, and he has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. And he also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Dan Fogelberg once wrote the song, Longer than there have been fishes in the ocean, higher than any bird ever flew, longer than there have been stars up in the heavens, I've been in love with you. Your creator, who made everything in the world, who is Lord over all creation, loves you. Do you know that? Don't get so preoccupied that you forget to put on the parachute. Not only does Paul tell us the first thing that God made everything, secondly, he says that God needs nothing. In verse 24, again, it says, He does not live in temples made by men. He doesn't need a beautiful house. He doesn't need the charity of Habitat for Humanity to come put him up somewhere. He doesn't need it. 
it says he himself gives life and breath and all things. He's not served by your hands or mine as though he needed anything. Listen, theologians call that the aseity of God, that God in the beauty of his holy trinity is completely content, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They're a community in themselves. One God of three persons, completely and utterly satisfied. But they made a creation out of their amazing imaginary, imaginatory love. And they created a world, and their love bubbled over to be shared with creatures who, though fallen, he did not leave us on our own. And he draws us in to his provision for our life. God does not need you. There is far better news. He loves you instead. Twentieth-century Christianity has put God on charity. A. W. Tozer once wrote, "So lofty is our opinion of ourselves that we find it quite easy, not to say enjoyable, to believe that we are necessary to God. But the truth is that God is." not greater for our being, nor would he be less if we did not exist. That we do exist is altogether God's free determination, not by our descent, nor by divine necessity. When God created the world, he created the world to share his glory, and God's love in himself overflows to us. Do you know that today, Christian? Don't get so preoccupied that you forget the parachute. God created everything. God needs nothing. And thirdly, Paul says that God has revealed himself. Look at verse 27, if you will. That they should seek God in the hope that they might find their way toward him. And yet he's actually not far from each of us. And then he quotes the old poet Epimenides. Oh, Epimenides. In him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, and then he quotes Aratus, and he says, For we are indeed his offspring. These are ancient poets in the classical world that he quotes. Why does he quote these people? Because they're the poetry that they read all the time. That, it, that, that's their life. So he draws on those sources that are immediately available to them to say, Look, how do I communicate to you that God really has come? Your own poets even talk about it. Um, and you know what? So do our poets as well. Almost every song that Bono sings is about the longing for creation. You know what's funny about U2 is that I tried to get tickets. One, Lauren tried to get me tickets to U2 one time. And they came on sale in Dallas when we lived there. And she called within 20 minutes of them going on sale. And she was not able to buy tickets because they had sold the entire American Airlines arena out. That's like God. Infinitely holy and beautiful, and no matter how quick you are on the trigger, you are not going to be able to get in. God is an infinitely holy and beautiful God. But the gospel says that he has given us access to him. He is not far from each one of you. A, a friend of mine um, uh, got a, a, a wedding invitation in the mail, and in the mail, in this wedding invitation, was a ribbon, and it had a little card on it, and it just said, within the ribbon, 
So you can imagine this just, you know, confused him. He, what does that mean? Does that mean I need to buy a gift that will fit in the ribbon? Do I bring this with me? What is within the ribbon? Do I stand? What do I do with it? So he didn't know, and so several months later when the wedding comes, he goes to the wedding, and he walks up, and the usher grabs his arm, and he walks him up to the very front of the church, and he seats this man with the family, and the usher looks at my friend and says, within the ribbon of the family. In the gospel, God has given you an invitation to him, and he has given you a ribbon. And that ribbon has a card on it that says, within the ribbon. That even though he's holy and beautiful and he stands off, he invites you into the intimacy of his own family. And some of you don't feel like you're really loved and accepted. It's because you're so proud you can't see that he has given you access to the ribbon. How audacious it would be if somebody were to say, within the ribbon of the family, and you go, no, no, I, I, I couldn't possibly sit with the family. You've been invited. Enjoy it. He loves you that much. Do you hear the story about the baby who um, scaled the fence? Of the, well, he didn't scale the fence. He slipped under the fence of the White House. Did y'all hear about this? And he starts walking at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, and he's going toward the White House, and like, helicopters come in and men that are hiding behind bushes they all like descend on like this like 17 month old baby did y'all see this on cnn they just come in this only happened a couple weeks ago and they grab this baby and the mother's freaking out why because that baby did not have access to 1600 pennsylvania avenue the white house but you know there are two girls who do and they can have dinner with the president every night and they can talk to the president on their cell phone. And they can tease with the president. They can wrestle with him. Why? Because he is their daddy. Friends, you have a loving God who made everything in creation. And you have a God who didn't just make everything in creation. You have a God who needs nothing. But yet he has revealed himself to us as a loving father. Do you know him? He's revealed himself to us as one who is accessible through the finished work of Jesus Christ. It's not your work that gets you in. It's because you know Jesus. And not only does the gospel give you access to this infinitely holy God, it says what in the text? It says he has appointed a day where we will be judged and of this he has given us assurance to all in the midst of that judgment by raising him from the dead. Friends, you have utter security in Jesus Christ. Many of you feel, if you're like me, that you, you're tied to Jesus and you're serving him and you want to be a good Christian. But you know what? Jesus has tied himself to you. And his happiness and his joy as a God who loves to be worshipped is inextricably linked to your salvation. Do you think he's going to give up on you? Being at church on Sunday morning means that God is drawing you into covenant renewal because he's reminding us of the simple truths about life. He made everything 
He needs nothing. And he has revealed himself to us. And when he gives you the assurance, he gives you an assurance that may not feel immediate, but your position before him is immediate. Notice it says in verse 32 through 34 that some mocked him, but others believed and they joined in. And among whom were Dionysius the Areopagite. Listen, this guy was around the Areopagus so thirsty for the truth that they called him after the place he hung out. It's like, this guy is the gym rat. This guy is always here. And there are some of you who have called church your place to hang out for years, but you've never let the other shoe drop. God made everything. He needs nothing. And he's revealed himself to you through Jesus to give you access and to assure you of his love. Try an experiment this week. Just try to unchoose God. Go for it. Try to unchoose him. He is the hound of heaven who will hunt you down and bring you home. He loves you. And your faith, small though it may seem, is not is not to be the matter which you're principally obsessed. It is Jesus. Because you can have faith as small as a mustard seed and have all the faith you need. It's the object of your faith, never the amount of it. You ask a person if they're a Christian, it's kind of like asking a person if they're married. Are you married? The answer is very simple, either yes or no. But you ask many people if they're Christians and they'll say, well, I'm trying. You imagine asking somebody, hey, are you married? Well, I'm trying. Husbands, that's the wrong answer. But that's what Christians do all the time. And the truth of scripture is therefore there is now, now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. And you are secure in his presence and you have the assurance of his faithfulness to you to make sure that you are brought to completion. In Ephesians, uh, there's a, um, a, a second letter written to the book of Ephesians. Did you know that? It's in the book of Revelation in chapter 2, the letter to the Ephesians of the seven epistles, the seven letters to the churches. And when John is in Revelation, he has this vision. He's writing the book of Revelation to the church of Ephesus. He says, but you have, I have this against you, speaking of the Lord. The Lord says that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Have you gotten so distracted, so preoccupied that you forgot the parachute? God created everything. God is a creator. He rules over all creation and he created you to enjoy him. God needs nothing. He is completely self-sufficient. But he created you to depend upon him. And therein is your delight and joy. And God has revealed himself through Jesus Christ. And he wants to show you the extent of his grace by safely bringing you through the free fall into the arms of his love. So run to him. Let's pray. Father, would you help us to see that sometimes 
even with our best intentions, we get distracted, so distracted that we forget the simple truths that you created everything, that you need nothing, and that you have revealed yourself to us through the person of your Son who died the death we should have died and he lived the life we could not live to be the perfect substitute for us. So, Father, would you call us now to respond in faith to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.